So welcome everybody to Health or Consequences, a podcast roughly monthly of Commonwealth Magazine and Mass Inc. I'm John McDonough. I'm with the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and joining me is my erstwhile partner, uh, Dr. Paul Haddis from the Tufts University School of Medicine. Welcome, Paul. Welcome, John. Welcome, Michael Curry. We are, uh, we are welcome. We are thrilled to welcome uh, Michael Curry as our guest today. Uh, Michael has a long history with the uh, Community Health Center movement in Massachusetts. He's currently Deputy CEO and General Counsel for Government Affairs and Public Policy for the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers. Uh, he also has a lengthy history with the NAACP. Uh, he served as the president of the Boston chapter of the NAACP, was uh, given considerable uh, awards and recognition for his tremendous job in uh, leading and expanding and growing that chapter. And in recent years, he's been a national leader with the NAACP, currently a member of the organization's board of directors. So, Michael, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Me on. So could we just start, Michael, could you describe a little bit about your background, in particular, your, the history of your involvement with the Mass League of Community Health Centers and uh, the NAACP, Boston and National? Um, I would probably start uh, in a place that I don't know if people would expect me to start in terms of my background, but I would say, uh, one, you know, I'm a child of Roxbury. Uh, my mother was a mom uh, who, uh, just like Elizabeth Wilkerson's book, Warmth of Other Sons, she moved up uh, from the Jim Crow South in Alabama uh, and into Boston. Uh, and um, as the book talks about Warmth of Other Sons for more opportunity, for jobs, uh, and she ended up taking domestic work. So uh, she had me uh, in 1968, uh, and I was raised in community health centers. Uh, my mother got her primary care and our care at Whittier Street Health Center uh, in Roxbury. Uh, we would eventually move a little bit up further into sort of Dorchester, Roxbury area, and I would then switch to getting my care at Roxbury Comprehensive Health Center, which, uh, as you both know, is gone now. We, we lost that health center. Um, so uh, who would have known the little kid who went there to get food, who went there to after school programs, who went there to get my immunizations, that I would eventually come back there and get my care there as well. Um, you know, that was my first exposure to community health centers. Uh, I would eventually go to college, graduate high school, go to college, come back, intentionally come back, which I think is true for a lot of African Americans that Many of us come back for a reason because we do go to other places and we experience um, different cultures and more opportunity for African-Americans in Boston. Mm. But some of us come back with the intention of trying to change the culture and those opportunities here. I was one of those students. Uh, I was the president of the Black Student Union at McAllister College in St. Paul and uh, talked about the violence, the crime, the drugs, the, the racism, the police abuses, that long list of inequities and uh, circumstances that face the communities I grew up in, uh, which I didn't understand as a kid. And it's not until you land on a college campus and you start reading books that provide context for your communities that, that explains why the poverty is, it explains why there's so much housing and food insecurity. 
then I made it my commitment while I was on campus that I wanted to come home and do this work. So that brought me home uh, and I ended up working here for years. I actually led the Million Man March Mobilization Committee, which I think people know. Uh, millions of brothers went down to DC in 1995 and we came home. Uh, I became elected as the Million Man March Mobilization Committee co-chair and that's by uh, all the elected officials were at the table at the time, Senator Wilkerson, Mel King, uh, Sarah Ann Shaw, who people know from Channel 4, the late Nataskia, who did a lot of work in recovery and substance use. Uh, all of them and many others elected me to co-chair. And I was in my 20s at the time, so I was pretty young. And now charged with leading this organization, which would eventually fizzle out um, and, and after a few years. Uh, and the NAACP, Lenny Alkins recruited me to come and do some work in the NAACP. He said, why don't you bring that energy over here? We have the structure, we have the resources. Uh, and I got the opportunity to work under him for many years. Great, thank you. Paul? Uh, Michael, with, with that sort of, appreciate sort of the, the background and, and the breadth of your own experiences and development with the COVID-19 pandemic upon us now, and really a heightened focus on racism in America since the murder of George Floyd a couple of months ago, what strikes you at this very moment uh, in American history? Yeah, you know, I've, I've been waiting for this moment. I think as a person who, who has been working in this sort of civil rights social justice space since I was on a college campus in St. Paul, um, I was always troubled by the fact that people didn't see racism. Um, and I would say the majority of the white folks that I would talk to, even some people of color, many people of color, um, didn't know how to explain it, didn't know how to, to point it out when they saw it. Um, and I used, to I used to stress over that. I, as a young activist, I said, you know, why am I seeing something that other people aren't seeing? And I think there's a term that John may know, uh, Lauren Smith, who used to be a DPH, Department of Public Health, introduced a lot of us to this term called the weathering effect. And the weathering effect, and they, she used the example of asthma. And she said, they came in and they asked black families to rate their kids asthma from one to 10. And these black mothers, like my mother, who I had asthma, um, she would have rated it maybe a four or five. And th those mothers did. And then when um, the doctors came behind to evaluate those same children, they were eight, nines, and tens. And her explanation was that um, you get weathered to being sick. Um, you get weathered to taking the pump every day and being in the emergency room once a month, that it becomes your normal. And I think that's really where we are. And as a country, we become normalized. It's become normalized to have, uh, be denied a housing because you're black or brown. It's become normalized to be stopped by the police, to be shot by the police. It's become normalized to not get that promotion, to be laid off first, to not be hired. It's become normalized to have someone grab their purse when you walk down the street or across the street. Um, all those things have become so normalized that people for their own coping mechanisms, particularly African-Americans, don't want to see them. I use the analogy sometimes of the little kid in the movie Sixth Sense, if you remember uh, Bruce Willis's movie, where the classic line in that movie is, I see dead people. Uh, and I see dead people in this case is I see racism. And like the little boy in the film, he didn't want to see them because it called for him to do something. And uh, seeing them came with tremendous responsibility and risk. And I think racism has the same uh, obligation that if you see it, 
then you have to speak up in that corporate boardroom. Then you have to say something in the department store when they're following that African-American around the store. Then you have to speak up when you see a police officer with a knee on his neck, on a man's neck, murdering him for eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's the courage we've been waiting for. But in order to get that courage, people have to see it. They have to recognize that racism is embedded in this country over 400 years from slavery to today. And I think, you know, the data is there. I always say, if you, if you, as an attorney, if you let me argue a case for racism, that it exists and where it exists, I'd win that case every time. Because as you both know, data speaks volumes. And every indicator about Black Lives Mattering, right? And I always say it that way. If Black Lives Mattered, we would not have the disparities we have. Because then we'd solve our murders, which we don't. Unsolved murders are ridiculous. Do you see the sense of urgency right now to take on the things you've been observing to us in the last uh, few minutes or so? Yeah, I, I think the urgency is there, but it's it could be waning. Um, as both of you know, uh, the times that you watch these moments before, they've been moments, maybe movements, is this could be a moment and not a movement. And I think I'm waiting, uh, like all of us are, to see if this is a movement. Um, so far, it seems to be one, but we'll know if there's a seismic shift in all the indicators that we talked about. If we still are dying at a higher rate of diabetes and heart disease and cancer, five, 10 years from now, then we didn't get the point of this. If, if young black men and some women are being murdered um, by police officers, um, we didn't get the point. If we don't understand the social determinants of community violence, when, when, when uh, Raheem kills Tyrone, right? If we don't get what that is, and we keep thinking it's just about bad kids and, and these black men who are murdering each other, then if we don't get those things, we'll be here five, 10 years from now, and there'll be another riot. And uh, shame on us. So thank you for that, uh, Michael. Can we switch to talking about community health centers in Massachusetts in this pandemic era? Um, how are health centers doing right now? We know there's different categories. There's some that are federally licensed and some that are not, some that are independent and parts of chains. What's the state of the community health center world right now from your position with the Mass League of Community Health Centers? So, um, you know, what a difference a day makes. You know, I go back three, four months and uh, it was uh, traumatic uh, from the standpoint of advocating for health centers. Uh, as soon as this pandemic hit, health centers saw a 50 to 76% decline in patient revenue. Uh, and as you know, that's a significant hit for a business to run if you're not getting revenue. So many of them were trying to figure out how they would respond to this moment of a pandemic while dealing with a few circumstances. One, um, revenue loss. So how do you pay the bills, keep the doors open when you don't have money coming in? Um, two, um, they couldn't get PPE. So they couldn't get the, the, the N95s or the KN95s and therefore they couldn't protect their workforce. Uh, and as you both know, um, the workforce in healthcare can be older. So your doctor, your nurse practitioner, uh, your frontline staff at a health center could be in that risk group of age of 55 or whatever plus that makes them even more vulnerable to, um, to COVID-19. Add on top of that, that the state, as John, you know, had been resistant to telehealth. Uh, and federally, uh, the federal government had been resistant to adopting all this technology. 
So there was a lot there that really made a lot of us, you know, it was sleepless nights for us at the Mass League of Community Health Centers, which represents the 52 community health centers. And I can tell you uh, sleepless nights for many of the health centers trying to solve for the issues I just talked about. Uh, and then um, figuring out what our role was. We tend to be canaries in the coal mine. Um, if you want to figure out what's happening around uh, mortality, morbidity in communities of color and what's, what the disparities that are playing out, go to the health centers first because um, we're serving those populations. If you want to talk about language barriers that are created when uh, people can't access services or they don't trust services, right? Post Tuskegee syphilis experiment, post all this anti-immigrant uh, policy and rhetoric in the country, go to a health center and you will see it up front. And we were trying to solve for all these issues that I just talked about um, while responding, testing, tracing, and treating patients with COVID-19 and turning our facilities into urgent care centers. That sounds like a lot, and it was. <laughs> we, we were definitely reeling, trying to figure out how to be responsive. And fortunately, um, the, the governor and the Secretary Sutter's, Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, stepped in and provided some much needed resources to keep our doors open. Um, we had the federal government, a series of, of federal bills, the Cures Act, uh, provide some funding, uh, Paul, that, that helped us stabilize our finances. Uh, we're small businesses, small nonprofits, so we were able to take advantage. Many of them were able to take advantage of the PPP, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program through the federal government. Not all, because some of our health centers are over 500 employees, so there was no lifeline for them, the bigger health centers. Um, some of them had to curtail services or hours to really respond to this and switch to telehealth. And they're not fully back, John, to the place that they were where you had 100% of your patients, not 100%, but where you were at a patient uh, visit level, they've not regained that at this point. Some are about 70, 75, 80% there. Um, but what we're seeing is we're getting more telehealth, telehealth be behavioral health visits as a result of the technology. I think that's the promising news is that people are accessing behavioral health because they now can do it from their office or from their home uh, and, um, and with some, some confidentiality built into that, that they can do it from their home. So, you know, there's some good and there's some bad, but we're concerned that in about six months, this infusion of cash that's helped us stabilize uh, will be gone and we'll be back to where we were three months ago. Right, right now, do you expect to see any health center closings in Massachusetts? So, you know, my job, John, is to solve for that and to make sure that that doesn't happen. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock on wood, if you don't mind me doing that, <laughs> to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, we, we tend to be very predictive. So we do surveys on a regular basis. Where are you with your finance? We hold a monthly, actually a weekly CFO call. Um, so we get our chief financial officers from all the health centers on the call, say, hey, what's happening with your billing? How are you using, and we, our clinical folks as well, how are you using um, the telehealth? Do you have the technology? We have a collaboration going on right now to make sure that they have the best technology, that they have the technical assistance they need, they have the, the protocols and policies in place to fully avail themselves of telehealth. And we, you know, my team uh, is constantly providing them with access to more resources. So I don't anticipate we'll lose them, but we know how this funding piece works. You worked in the legislature. Um, if, if the bottom falls out in six months and there's no dollars coming in and we're back in a surge uh, dealing with COVID-19, it's possible. Mm -hmm. Let me ask a little follow-up to there. 
first of all, if you are if in six months from now, if there's a need for more resources, do, do you or the league have a perspective on whether that comes from federal or state government or whoever at this point? Yeah, so I think it's a it's a patchwork of all of the above. You know, you know, part of uh, this whole recovery process for health centers has been, you know, mass health advances. The state provided some advanced payments on mass health, um, um, and that was tremendous in just helping us to stabilize um, grant opportunities. And I think of organizations like Direct Relief providing um, PPE uh, donations of PPE and some donations of cash. Mayor Walsh in the city of Boston and Marty Martinez, uh, who stepped in and said, hey, we want you to do more testing and we're gonna give you resources. Same with uh, the, the state as well. Um, it, it is an interesting thing that I think people forget. Health centers have to provide care to the state's most vulnerable, um, the people already dealing with chronic conditions uh, who have all the insecurities, the food, housing insecurity, the homelessness, because we treat a lot of homeless patients um, a lot of documented and undocumented uh, people who need care. And while we're doing all those that care and providing immunizations, then comes a pandemic. And part of the challenge now is how do we continue to provide care for those who have COVID-19 in a way that is responsive to what they need? That, again, the testing, contact tracing, and then the treatment but also get our normal patients back in for all those underlying conditions that if we don't treat for them now, we'll see, you know, there could be a measles outbreak in a few months, or there could be a worsening of a diabetes uh, situation or, or, or cancer diagnosis. So I think our challenge right now is, and we have a campaign going on on the television on channel five, um, that's encouraging patients to come back in for care. If, if there is another surge, and I realize your health centers aren't all at the same point, but is your greatest fears on the PPE side? Is it their ability to continue to get revenues from telehealth if we have to shut down again? Is it, you know, maybe it's all those things, but I don't know if there's a particular heightened concern that you have. So Paul, it's interesting you asked that question. Um, weekly, we do a survey and it's a survey we do in Massachusetts, but it's also a national survey that our national organization does, which is the National Association for Community Health Centers. A survey. So we get to compare what is a Massachusetts priority list or a list of concerns with what is nationally a list of concerns. So if you went back um, two months, um, Paul, yes, it would be finances. Um, if you went back uh, two, three months, it would be PPE. Probably PPE and finances would have been one and two. Believe it or not, it's shifted. The, the number one issue that we've seen for the last three weeks has been health disparities. Hmm that now because we've stabilized our finances in the short term, uh, now because we seem to have the PPE we need with the production of PPE, some shortage, but where people are rationing uh, in a way that doesn't make me happy, but hospitals are rationing too. Um, but what we're seeing is health disparities become a priority because we're now able to focus in on the fact that black and brown citizens are suffering and dying of COVID-19 at a higher rate and um, there are many factors that contribute to that. I call that our national Katrina, that we should have known that when Katrina hit that area that black and brown people would be disproportionately impacted because they don't have cars, um, because of the same issues, congested households, um, inability to um, financially have the means to, to evacuate. Um, some of those same issues play out here with COVID-19 in communities of color, um, congested households, 
uh, language barriers, distrust of systems, um, distrust of you know our immigration process uh, and and ICE, um, and a whole host of reasons that make them susceptible. So I think finally, Paul, starting to um, get out of the crisis enough to focus on the underlying issues, and hopefully we solve for that underlying issue and not just the moment, right? Not just what we're seeing, the disparities, but we solve for the health disparities, John, that Healthcare for All and others have talked about for years. We now need to really figure out why people are sicker and living a shorter period of life. Um, and it's not just because people don't eat right. It's also about, as the Institute of Medicine put out, unequal treatment um, over two decades ago. We, we've not responded to the findings in that report like we should have. Um, Michael, you mentioned the particular situation that health centers find themselves in with a patient population, the patient population that has much higher rates of chronic disease, uh, much larger representation of, um, of uh, African-Americans and Latinos. Mm -hmm. um, and so your, your patient population is much at a higher risk in terms of the impact of, of COVID. Do you see that play out? And how do the health centers see their role in trying to address that at this point in time? Yeah, so it's, um, yes, we're seeing it play out. You know, our patients are those that have the higher rates of COVID-19. Our patients are those that are dying. Um, and, and some are dying at home. We're seeing that play out, um, and it is troubling. Um, and I think that's why we've become the tip of the spear, both on the state level and on the city level, and town managers across the Commonwealth are saying, health centers, we need you. And I'll tell you, John, there's some challenges with that, because I think um, this pandemic has revealed some challenges in our, in our healthcare system, in our public health response, which is um, when a town and I'm not naming a particular town, is turning to say, okay, we need to respond to this pandemic. Who's going to do the testing and tracing? And, you know, that burden has fell, fallen on health centers. And, and the infrastructure of our local towns have not necessarily been prepared for a pandemic. I, I think we have to solve for that because they're trying to manage expectations with some of their mayors and town managers who say, hey, not only do we want you to test in your health center, but we want you to drive around and do mobile testing, or we want you to test at our nursing homes, or we want you to set up at the DCU Center, or set up um, downtown uh, at the World Trade Center, um, the Exhibition Center. You know, there are all these demands that come on health centers because of the moment, and, and we're honored and privileged that we're considered um, reliable for that, but it also comes with tremendous stress. Because right now you're trying to respond to your patients. You're being asked to expand that and respond to people who may not necessarily be your patients. So um, we're in a place where we're seeing the impact on our patients. And now we're treating and responding to people uh, that are outside of our communities. Our contact tracing, uh, about 300 or so uh, employees at health centers signed up with the state as part of Partners in Health contract that we're doing the contact tracing, not necessarily just in the health center's um, catchment area, but they could be contact tracing for Western Mass and they're in Boston. Um, and people wanted us in that role because we speak the many languages, because we know the cultures, we're culturally competent and proficient, because we, we navigate those waters often. So 
it's different than hiring John off the street, not John meaning you, John, but a John off the street to do contact tracing. Uh, and you get the diversity of the contact tracers. So um, we're concerned about what happens going forward, what the expectations will be. I know there was a there was talk at one point of diverting ambulances to health centers. Um, and that was in the, it, with the surge on the hospitals that we, they would send some less acute patients to health centers. We don't have life-saving equipment like that, right? Health centers aren't equipped, like not all of them. You know, you'll have an East Boston, some, which has a, an emergency services, uh, urgent care center uh, at some, but not many health centers have all those light. We don't have ventilators. Um, we don't have that kind of equipment. So there would need to be some coordination, which I don't think has happened yet, is if there is another surge, and, and whether it's this pandemic or the next, um, John, we need to get all the parties in the room and figure out what, what the Mass Hospital Association is thinking about uh, responding, what the Mass League is thinking, the behavioral health community, and I'm looking forward to that broader, we call this a war against this pandemic. Like a war, we need a war room, um, where everybody's at the table and figuring out what scenarios could play out and how each of us could respond. Um, some of that is happening through the command center with uh, Secretary Sutters, but I'm, I'm hoping that something broader happens in the future. Can we um, change topics just for a bit, same area? Um, you've had now uh, many years of close experience uh, with both the Boston and National NAACP. Um, over the past two months, we've seen, I believe it's the largest mass demonstrations in American history over Black Lives Matter. Um, can you just reflect on that experience of the past several months um, from your history with Boston and now the national NAACP? Yeah, I, I would probably characterize what we're seeing right now as truth catching up to history. Um, if, if, you know, John, I always say I want to be known for something, a phrase, if they, people say Michael Curry said that, um, that's my phrase, truth catching up to history. Um, we knew that uh, when you look across the country and you look at the, the economic disparities, right, so the color of wealth in Boston, the Federal Reserve's report that they put out, we knew that that wasn't an accident, that the wealth gap was the product, the result of generations of, of economic inequity, of, of discrimination, of racism. Now, whether everyone understood that, that you can read that report, you, got, you then have to connect the dots to um, the, the, the unfulfilled 40 acres and a mule of 400 slaves, 4 million slaves after centuries of, of slavery. You'd have to connect the dots to uh, the depression and um, the various world wars and the GI Bill and all those um, rising tides provided economic opportunities for white Americans that didn't proportionally provide those opportunities for African Americans. When you connect those dots, then it makes sense why there's a, a significant wealth gap in our country. When you look around, and I always challenge my white friends and colleagues, that if you look around at the C-suites and you see white men, if you look at every mayor in the history of the city of Boston being a white male, think that is just normal, then that's racism. Because what it means is you've left talent on the table, women, people of color who are also smart. Now, I'm not going to say, and no, no disrespect to any of you who <laughs> of our past mayors, but not all of them were Rhodes Scholars. <laughs> 
not, not all of them were brain surgeons. Um, so it set this ridiculous bar where African-Americans and women and people of color, um, we, we, I, I tell people there's a, a young black girl in Southside Chicago right now, in Roxbury right now, in uh, LA right now, who is meant to find a cure for cancer. And we'll never know her because she goes to a level four school, a substandard education. She doesn't have physics. She doesn't have the resources she needs. And we will never know her brilliance because of those circumstances. We need everyone to, to really see that, that we need to all be tied to that little black girl in Roxbury or Southside Chicago. And I don't think we think that. As a country, I think that's them versus us. And we may feel bad for that little black girl in Roxbury, but we don't understand her, our interconnection. So to your question, John, um, we're, we're in turmoil right now. Um, some might even consider this a, a revolution <laughs> that people are marching in the streets and are violently protesting in some cases. Um, and, you know, and I'll say this to your viewers, and I challenge people on this. I'm not condoning violence, um, but I do know that violence is, as American as apple pie um, from the American Revolution and the righteous mob and folks saying no taxation without representation. Imagine being murdered by police. Right. Imagine the equivalence of that. Right. Imagine um, being generations of knowing you've been denied housing or, or there have been covenants uh, built into these 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 sell, sales of homes that have denied. And we now see that. Right. We're now seeing data come out again. The revelation again that people have been steered away from certain neighborhoods and communities rented and not rented certain properties. That recent report that came out, it, it should shock the conscience of every American that we still are dealing with things generations later. Um, and I'm hopeful that people's righteous indignation will take them into the streets, that will make them go to the polls angry, that will make them show up in ways that we've not showed up in, in quite frankly, ever. Um, and we need our white allies to be right there with us. Michael, as we, as we wrap up our, our, our time together, you've been incredibly thoughtful and provocative, for us at least. Just use that little girl for a moment you just mentioned. Uh, what are your hopes and fears for her? Yeah, my hopes and fears for her is that one, that we see her, right? That this is all about whether we see the potential, the talent, um, the brilliance um, of young African-Americans. Like I, I tell people, when you turn on your television tonight and there's a murder in Chicago, of a young child, we're seeing a rash of them, right? I need you to be as overwhelmed as the black families in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I need you to feel like those are your children. Um, we need to be vested in that young girl's education and in her survival. And I, and I don't feel that connection exists right now. I, I think we're getting there. As many of my white friends and colleagues call me and say, Mike, I'm, I'm not able to sleep at night. I'm, I'm thinking about this stuff. I didn't really know about the Confederate flag. I, I didn't understand what it would be, how traumatic it would be for a young kid to go to the Robert E. Lee High School, right? How gaslighted you are to attend a school named after a man who would have enslaved you, kept you enslaved. Or, you know, we, we were talking the other day, and, and this is interesting as well, we were uh, listening to this, the, the tune of uh, the ice cream song that we all grew up chasing the ice cream truck. And um, the news came out really recently, and I didn't even notice this, so right, 
that the tune came from, a, I think, a 1926 racist song. Really? And, and you can Google it. Do Google uh, Ice Cream song, WBUR, because WBR did a special on it. And, and how gaslighted we must feel as African-Americans, that we've been running out of the house chasing the ice cream truck. Basically was, um, um, I think it's the N-word is used throughout the song. So, so this has been embedded in our culture. And how dare we not unwrap that and unpack that and figure out where it manifests itself in our policies, in our regulations, in our, in our attitudes, in our systems. Um, and if we don't do that, we're doomed to repeat it and we're doomed to be here again. We've been here when I was born in 68 for riots. Uh, Rodney King, there were riots. We were torn up over some legal decisions because we saw race differently and how our courts treat black people versus white people. Um, we'll be here again. There'll be, as we see it play out, there'll be another murder by law enforcement. My last piece, and I, I wanna say this with John because I, I think I'll be curious John's take on this. When people say defund the police, John, I tell people all the time, defunding is a policy term. I said they defunded our pandemic response. That if they hadn't defunded, meaning removed positions and removed the funding, we would have had a better response to this pandemic. We defund health and human services all the time, social services all the time. Those are, those are policy decisions. And usually it's a decision on whether you want to put money on the downstream or the upstream and maybe prevent some of the downstream. And I would say, you know what, defunding is a valid policy conversation to say to people, why, why buy so many tanks and automatic weapons? Why don't we invest more in schools and social support programs and education and in housing so that we don't get people downstream being arrested and incarcerated? I, I think it's a valid conversation and I challenge anyone who's, who's offended by the word defunding. Uh, police brought this on themselves because if you're not responsible with what we give you, and this is true of policy, John, if, if we give you resources, you're not responsible with them, don't be surprised if people want to pull them. And if nothing else, it's challenging you to rethink and adjust how you're dealing with communities. And I think that's where we are. Michael Curry, uh, Deputy CEO of the Mass League of Community Health Centers and leader in the NAACP, Boston and National. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank thanks you. to my co-host, Paul Haddis. Thank I'm you, John Michael. McDonough. This thank is uh, Health or Consequences, and uh, we'll be back again next month. Um, thank you again, Michael and Paul, and uh, good wishes to everybody. Thank you. Thank you.